Proverbs chapter 30, verse 1, tells us these are the words of Agur, the son of Yakeh, the oracle, the man declares to Ithiel, to Ithiel and Ukal. How many of you, prior to our study in the book of Proverbs, if asked to write a list of prophets, would have put Agur even on the list? How many of you have, had even heard of Agur before we got into Proverbs? Okay, one or two, three maybe out of all of us had heard of Agur. Who is this guy? And why is his writing here? And what does he have to say to me? This, this guy from way back, 2,700 years at least, if not further back, what does he have to say to me, to you tonight? This guy, we could call him Agur the Obscure. Because it's like all we know about him literally is what's contained in the first verse. And then what we can draw out about him based on the questions he asks and the statements he makes. We can kind of get a a sense of maybe what what makes him tick, but not much. And as soon as we finish Proverbs 30 tonight, Agur will go back into obscurity, except for those times where you check back in with Proverbs chapter 30. And I'm not so sure that's a bad thing, because it's not Agur that we're here to be impressed with after all. It's Jesus Christ. But what an interesting guy. He's a self-declared prophet. The word oracle there in the first verse. If you were here Sunday, you know this, but let me just uh, stir you up by way of reminder. The word oracle, masa, in the Hebrew, means a burden or a prophetic word. So this is the burden of Agur, the prophetic word of Agur. You know, again, if you were here Sunday, his name means gatherer, collector. And that makes sense. One who's gathered together these sayings, these these. Uh, collect this collection of wisdom in this chapter. But what's interesting is these words are directed to two, apparently two guys, Ithiel and Ukal. Now if you were here first service on Sunday, I mentioned probably either his sons or his friends or a couple of his students, Ithiel and Ukal. And then someone asked me a question between services about these two names because someone had a translation that was different that actually translated out these two names. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. And I ran home and I looked it up and I shared that second hour. So if you were here first hour, you missed that. Let me tell you what these names mean. Because translators have struggled for centuries over this one verse. Trying to figure out, okay, are these names or are they descriptions? Is he saying something or is he just saying... This is who he was talking to. And it's, it's difficult to tell because Hebrew names are so picturesque. Hebrew names are so full of meaning in and of themselves that sometimes it's not necessarily a name, but, but a statement. Ithiel literally means God in me. Ukal means one who prevails. So he's talking with God in me and one who prevails. So, a couple of possibilities. Agur could be making a statement of confidence here. If it's not actually two people that he's talking to, and it's possible that it's not, then he might be making a statement of uh, confidence, saying, the man declares, God is in me, God is in me, and I prevail. Which is another way of reading that that, uh, first verse. The man declares, God is in me, God is in me, and I prevail. And you know, that, that would fit. That fits where he begins this whole chapter because he goes on to describe the absolute limitation of his own flesh. 
He says in verse 2, Surely I am more stupid than any man, and I do not have the understanding of a man. Neither have I learned wisdom, nor do I have the knowledge of the Holy One. But before he says that, he would have said, God is in me. God is in me and I prevail. And then going on to say, in and of myself, I have nothing. Like Paul. Paul saying in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10, By the grace of God I am what I am. And His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God in me. Paul saw that it wasn't his power that did what he was capable of doing. It was God's power in him, God's grace. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3.5, Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. I like that. It's not just our glory is from God, our wondrous accomplishments are from God, it's our adequacy. Without God, I am fully inadequate. But my adequacy is from Him. And Agur may be saying that. It may be a statement of confidence. God in me, God in me, I am one who prevails. But there's another more subtle possibility here. And I'm just going to throw this out for you to think about. Agur could be appealing to the Spirit of Christ. Actually conversing with Jesus as he's writing this down. What are you talking about? Ithiel, God in me, is remarkably similar to Emmanuel, God with us. God in me, God with me, God with us. Ithiel, Emmanuel, God is both. Remember that Hezekiah's friends are the ones who collected from uh, chapters 25 through chapter 31, the whole of the rest of the book of Proverbs. Solomon finished at 24. Beginning with chapter 25, the rest was added later. And many commentators look at chapter 30 and chapter 1 as appendices to the sayings of wisdom. Add-ons that were tacked on at the end because they, they seemed to fit, they seemed appropriate there. Hezekiah's friends were writing in the days of a prophet named, you know him, Isaiah. Isaiah is the prophet who said in Isaiah 7.14, The Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and will bear a son, and she will call His name Emmanuel. God with us. Now I'm just proposing a possibility. There's no way we can nail this down and know for sure, but is it possible that this guy, Agur, was alive, living in the days of Hezekiah, that he was a, a wise man of the time, known in the time, not known now, but known then, perhaps, and that upon hearing this prophecy of Emmanuel, it struck a chord with him. Maybe so. Whether or not he was familiar with the prophecies of Isaiah, Agur could still here be appealing to the Spirit of Christ. You're saying the Spirit of Christ was with Agur? That's weird, man. Yes, it is. That is weird. But according to the Word of God, it's also true. 1 Peter 1 verse 10 says, As to our salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Which means, as I shared Sunday, that the prophets of the Hebrew Scripture had in them, speaking to them, indicating to them the very Spirit of Jesus Christ. That's where the prophecies came from. Christ telling them to talk about Christ, which is remarkable. 
and wonderful. And it fits the whole of Scripture because in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, John chapter 1. Nothing was made without Him and through Him all things that have been made were made. Again, John chapter 1. Jesus was there. All five of Agur's questions in verse 4, as we talked about before, can only be answered in one person in the whole of human history, and that's Jesus. Look at the questions again. Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Jesus. Who's gathered the wind in His fists? Jesus. Who's wrapped the waters in His garment? Jesus. Who has established all the ends of the earth? Jesus. What is His name or His Son's name? Surely you know. Yes, we do. Jesus. It's all Him. He is the answer to the questions. And Agur the Obscure is on to something here. And he's leading us in a direction, pointing a direction, pointing us to Christ. Now, that being said, you still have to ask the question I was asking, what made this man's scroll worthy of the canon of Scripture? The canon of Scripture? The canon of Scripture is the word that de- describes the, the absolute of Scripture, the, uh, the rule or the standard of Scripture. You know, that which was included as God-inspired, the divine Word of God put together in Scripture. So, how do they know Agur was the right guy to put into Scripture? How do we know this guy was inspired? Why do we accept this particular appendix as the divinely inspired Word of God? Bible students, before we go any further, I want to remind you of three simple standards for considering a book or a passage of Scripture as God-breathed. When you look at it, to know whether or not it truly is, whether or not it should be in the canon of Scripture. Number one, the test of time. The test of time. I'm talking about external evidence from the Bible. Some of this we've talked about, but I want to remind you, you need to get this down so you can answer, because this question is asked a lot, especially by non-Christians or the critics. Why should we believe your Bible more than any other spiritual writings out there? Number one, the test of time. The external evidence of the Bible is absolutely astounding. Historical evidence, geographical evidence, archaeological evidence supporting the Scriptures. And Psalm 12, verse 6 says, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. These words are tested and tried and true. And critics across the centuries, not just in our day and age, But across the centuries, people have attacked the Word of God. They've criticized the Word of God. They've tried to find loopholes, potholes, and and problems. And it still stands. The test of time. Psalm 85.11, one of my favorite verses, especially to quote on the Israel trip. Truth springs from the earth. And righteousness looks down from heaven. And so the test of time... The test of time, does Scripture stand up to the scrutiny of the ages? And the prophecy of Agur here in Proverbs 30 remains still here. The second second, uh, standard, not just the test of time, but also the text of Scripture. The text of Scripture itself, which is not the external evidence, but it's the internal evidence. It's Scripture supporting Scripture. No other book is like this book. No other spiritual writing comes close. You know, 40 different authors from three different continents, radically different walks of life, writing across 1,600 years. 
come on. And yet this book is remarkably lucid. The Koran. One author. And a third of it isn't even readable. Forty authors. And it reads, it's a beautiful, cohesive, interconnected, inspired narrative. The internal evidence of Scripture. And Scripture verifies Scripture. It quotes itself. It supports its own words. From Genesis to Revelation, back and forth, as you study through, you see, time and time again, what is spoken of in one place is revealed in another, is seen in another, is explained in another. It's absolutely remarkable, the text of Scripture. And the book of Agur stands in that test as well. The text of Scripture, as we read verse 4, the questions asked right there point directly to Jesus Christ. And call up other issues, other aspects of Scripture, as we'll see as we continue on in the chapter tonight. So the test of time and the text of Scripture, and number three, and probably the most important standard for whether or not a book belongs in the canon, is the testimony of Jesus. The testimony of Jesus. Does Jesus himself testify to Scripture? In this case, does Jesus support the words of Agur as valid? Because that's a big one for me. If Jesus is is down with it, I'm down with it. If Jesus uh, says this is legitimate, I'm going to believe it's legitimate. As with the book of Jonah. Jonah, swallowed by a fish. Oh, come on. Yeah, well, Jesus obviously believed it. So if he believed it, I'm going to believe it. And the same thing with Agur. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 42, The Queen of the South will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus not only acknowledged Solomon, Israel's great king of 400 years prior to Jesus coming on the earth, but Jesus, listen, knew the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs, by the time Jesus came along, was in the canon of Scripture. It was part of the Hebrew Scripture. It was part of what Jesus probably read, which was the Septuagint, that Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. That was the most widely used in Jesus' day. And Proverbs chapter 30, the words of Agur, were there. And that was the text, that was the the Bible that, that Jesus himself used, including the prophecy of Agur. So does Jesus testify to Scripture? And also, does the particular Scripture testify of Jesus? Which is the most important of all. And this does. And if you didn't hear Sunday, we went in definite length about how Agur points us to Jesus Christ. And it's, it's stunning. Revelation 19.10 tells us the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That's what this book is for. That's what this book is about. You've heard me say it a million times. Let me make it a million and one. The Word of God from Genesis to Revelation is about Jesus Christ. That's why it's here. And so every book should point us in His direction. One way or another, we should be able to have hints, signs, direction toward Jesus. And we have seen that. At least from Genesis through Proverbs, we've seen it here, haven't we? Oh, and Matthew, we did that, we saw it there. And in Revelation, we saw it there as well. And Timothy, saw it in Timothy. Was that first or second Timothy? What were you, second Timothy? Yeah, second Timothy, okay. So he's in all of those, I'm assuming he's probably in the rest as well. Verse 4, or verse 5 going on says, Every word of God is tested. Every word. He's a shield to those who take refuge in Him. 
It's all about Jesus. John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus said, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about Me. So be sure about that. Be clear on that. Though we have learned a lot about righteousness and we've been given uh, encouragement and challenge to righteousness in this book, this book isn't just about righteousness. It's about testifying to Jesus. Verse 6 says, Do not add to His words or He will reprove you. And you will be proved a liar. Well, that jives with Scripture, doesn't it? Don't add to this. Don't put more on to what's being said here. If you put more on, then you are a moron. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2. Moses, I just thought of that. Anyway. Deuteronomy 4, 2. Moses said, You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I commanded you. Some would say, wow, since Moses said that, doesn't that deny the New Testament? Isn't the New Testament an add-on to the Hebrew Scriptures? And Moses declared pretty early on, actually right at the end of Torah, so really after the first five books, everything should be suspect, right? Listen. The New Testament is not an add-on. It is not a new direction. It is a fulfillment of the old. And I'll explain that more in just a moment. In the New Testament, Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul said, Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. (coughs) Joseph Smith. (laughs) Hey, I'm not trying to say, oh, we should curse Joseph Smith, but I am saying the entire Mormon faith. The entire Mormon faith. I'll delete that later. No. The entire Mormon faith gang is based on the testimony of an angel. The angel... Macaroni? Moroni. <laughs> the angel moron. I can't get it right. It's one of those. This angel apparently comes to Joseph Smith, gives him this new revelation. Well, Paul had already said long before that, even if an angel gives you a new revelation, if one would actually step out of line and try and give you something different, he's to be accursed. Very clear. Don't add to this. Revelation 22.18 I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. And John is talking about Revelation, but it extends, I believe, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues, which are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. And my concern in the church today is not so much there's adding to as much as taking away. There's a lot of taking away from the word of God going on. John said, inspired, don't do it. This is what you would call a closed canon. The canon of Scripture, based on Scripture itself, be it Moses or Paul or John, the canon of Scripture is a closed canon, nothing more to be added, nothing more to be said. All other so-called spiritual texts are then just loose canons. (laughs) You know, they could go off. Sorry. But some might complain. 
Again, some might say, if Moses said you shall not add to the word which I'm commanding you, nor take away from it, doesn't the New Testament do just that? And the answer is no, it does not. The New Testament does not add one iota to the Old Testament. It brings the fulfillment in Jesus Christ, who the Old Testament is about. And Jesus himself said in Matthew 5.17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. The New Testament is the fulfillment of the Hebrew Scriptures. Jesus is the fulfillment of the whole Word of God. Now, let's get on with Agur here. He likes to use numerical devices. You're going to see at least six times in this where he will say uh, something to the effect of three things are this way and a fourth is even more so. And watch this as he does this. He begins actually with a twofold prayer there in verse 7. Twofold prayer. He, he prays, Two things I asked of you. Do not refuse me before I die. The first thing, verse 8. Keep deception and lies far from me. Agur says, I just want the truth. I just want the truth. The truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. I just want the truth. I don't want anything else. Bridges says, is this not the atmosphere of the world? Deception is its character. Lies its delusion, promising happiness only to disappoint its weary and restless victims. Everything deadens the heart and eclipses the glory of the Savior. A soul that knows its dangers and its besetting temptations will live in the spirit of this prayer of the godly Agur. This prayer, keep deception and lies far from me. I just want the truth. First thing he prays. Jesus said of all who follow Him in John 17, 16, they are not of this world, even as I am not of this world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So I just want the truth, Agur calls out. Continuing on, he says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion. That I not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. He says, I just want the truth. Secondly, he says, I just want to trust. I just want to trust. I don't want more than my portion. I don't want less than my portion. I just want to trust. Don't give me too much. Don't give me too little. A guru could say, if I'm rich in blessing, then Lord, make me poor in spirit. If I'm poor in assets, may I, Lord, be rich in grace. And in both cases, full of thanksgiving. So that's Paul's admonition on how to live. Philippians 4.11 says, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. And so Agur says, I just, I just want the truth, and I just want to trust. Those two things before I die, give me that, and I will be satisfied. Then verse 10, he goes on and says, Do not slander a slave to his master, or a servant to his master, or he will curse you and you will be found guilty. And this is a warning not to meddle in the business of others. As we heard from the earlier sayings of the wise, Proverbs 26.17, one of my favorite Proverbs, like one who takes a dog by the ears is he who passes by and meddles with strife not belonging to him. 
And I just love that picture. <laughs> You're going to get bit. You know? Meddling in, in the business of others, in the situation of others, don't stick your nose in where it doesn't belong. Slandering someone, you're going to end up in the midst of the mess yourself. Besides, if I'm, if I'm walking in truth, and if I'm trusting in the Lord, I will not be someone who stirs up strife. I will not be looking to cause problems or issues in other relationships. Now, from here... Agur goes on to describe four people in kind. Verse 11. There is a kind of man who curses his father and does not bless his mother. He begins with the rebellious kind. The rebellious kind. And he adds a warning. If you skip down and look at verse 17. He says later on in the chapter, The eye that mocks a father and scorns a mother... The ravens of the valley will pick it out and the young eagles will eat it. (laughs) Well, guess I better not do that. That's a pretty serious warning. What's the problem? Why the issue here with rebelling against parents? Gang, rebellion is the fuel of sin. It's what drives sin. It's what causes sin. It's that desire to do do things my way. To go the way I want to go. To live my life. No God, no church, no leaders are going to tell me what to do. It's rebellion. And rebellion is the stuff of the fuel of sin itself. Paul quoted the uh, fifth commandment in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 2, saying, honor your father and mother, which Paul says is the first commandment with a promise. So that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. Now, if you are rebelling against mother and father and birds are plucking your eyes out, you're not going to live long on the earth. Okay? That's the idea there. Rebelliousness. Bitterness against parents. What it does, whether the parents deserve it or not, rebelliousness and bitterness against parents will blind you to the truth and will keep you from the ability to trust in God your Father. And so the Word says... Don't rebel against your parents. Not a good direction to go. So there's a kind of man who does that, who's rebellious. Verse 12, second. There's a kind who is pure in his own eyes, yet is not washed from his filthiness. Who's that? The religious. It's a religious person. I go to church, I've got a whole closet load of suits just for the occasion. And a very clean Bible that I dust off every Sunday whether it needs it or not. Religious people. Verse 13, there is a kind, oh, how lofty are his eyes, and his eyelids are raised in arrogance, the pretentious person. We've got the rebellious, the religious, the pretentious. Verse 14, there's a kind of man whose teeth are like swords, and his jaw teeth like knives to devour and the afflicted from the earth and the needy from above, from among men. You've got the rebellious, the religious, the pretentious, and the fourth one there is the repressive. He who would oppress or repress other people. Now what's interesting in these four kinds, rebelliousness, religiosity, pretentiousness, and repression, in these four kinds, Agur runs the gamut of sin. He really covers pretty much all the bases. Four types of people who have always been and who will always be on the earth until the Lord finally takes wickedness out once and for all. 
But here's what caught my attention in this. There is a kind, he says. There is a kind. There is a kind. There is a kind. The word kind is dor in the Hebrew, D-O-R in our transliteration, and it literally means generation. There's a generation of rebellious people. There's a generation of religious people. A generation of pretentious people. A generation of repressive people. And I read that and go, yeah, this generation. We see it all going on in the world today. And thinking about generations, and i got to ask the question, and I'm asking it of myself, is this generation, all of us alive on earth today, is this generation making an impact for Christ in the way previous generations have made an impact for Christ? There are lots of churches. You know, there are mega churches, and there are house churches, and there are even barn churches. There are all kinds of churches out there. And any town you go to, you can find a number of buildings where people meet for worship and sometimes open the Bible and, you know, they have church. Are we making an impact in this generation like we have seen in previous generations? And what does it take to do that? Now, this has been less the question of my entire ministry life. What does it take? How can we be a fired up, generation for Jesus, impacting the world, flooding the world with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, seeing lives change, people giving their lives over to Jesus right and left. Are we doing that? And why don't we see more of that than we see right now? In a generation that's rebellious and religious and pretentious and repressive, how do we live as a generation for Christ? Keep your finger there and turn over to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12. Jesus, when He came in His generation, was dealing with a generation of Jewish people who had lost the edge. If they actually ever really had it. And I don't mean to disparage the Jewish people in the least. But Jesus came into a generation, very interesting time on the planet. Watch what He says in verse 41 of Matthew chapter 12. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Noah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The same Jonah who was swallowed by the fish that Jesus recognizes. Verse 42, the queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Or literally, a greater than Solomon is here. Greater than Jonah? Greater than Solomon? I'm standing right here before you. And then all of a sudden, it's as if Jesus takes an immediate left turn and gives a little parable about demonology, which is kind of weird. Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. And then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied and swept and put in order. And then this demonic spirit goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. They go in and live there and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. What are you saying, Jesus? 
aside from being an interesting teaching on demonology, which it is, and we can learn something just from that about how demons tend to function and how they like to work. But Jesus is talking about something else here. The generation Jesus is referring to here is Israel. But you got to think back a little bit. What happened in Israel? Why would he compare Israel to the man who had an unclean spirit washed out of him and then the spirit comes back and finds the man clean and swept and goes and gets seven more wicked spirits and then comes and fills the man again and, and Jesus is saying, he's saying, that's you, Israel. What? What do you mean, Lord? You ever wonder why there was such a glut of demons in the land in Jesus' day? I mean, Jesus is casting out demons right and left. What's up with that? All of a sudden, they're showing up. Now, part of the reason, obviously, was Satan recognized Messiah was on the planet, so we got to do something. You know, he's calling in for backup, trying to get as many demons in the land as possible. And Jesus just cast them out, go into the pigs, come out of that man, no big deal. And it just wasn't working. But there's another thing going on here, gang. I'm absolutely convinced. Not only was Satan calling in his hordes to go after the Messiah, but the land of Israel, which had been free from idolatry since the Babylonian captivity 500 years before. The land swept and clean. The land that originally the people went into Babylon because of idolatry, which is demon worship. Paul says if you're worshiping idols, you're worshiping demons. It's the same thing. And so the people were all into idolatry and and, and worship of other false gods, and they were captivated by it until they were captivated by Babylon. And they're taken out of the land. And something happened when they came back with Ezra and Nehemiah. When they came back into the land, guess what? They never had a problem with idolatry again. Idolatry was over. The house was clean. The house was swept. The house was empty. The problem is they didn't fill it with something else. It was just clean and swept. No more idolatry. And with that, the demons flood into the land... And when Jesus came, that generation did not receive Him as King. Ultimately, Israel will receive a King. His name, Antichrist. And when they receive Antichrist as King, as Jesus said, the last state of that man will be worse than the first state. You think the idolatry and the judgment was bad with Babylon coming into Israel? Just wait until they fill the emptiness with Antichrist. That's what Jesus is talking about there. The man is Israel. Swept out, clean, come back in captivity, everything's good, but Israel remained empty, and when you are empty, you get filled with something else. The point is this, gang, and talking about our generation, it is not enough, it's never enough just to sweep the house and clean out the sin. It's never enough to just say no. You've got to say yes to something else. Or though you said no and you've cleared it out. And this is, this is important for our lives. If you say no to a particular sin, but you don't replace that, that empty spot, once you've cleaned this out of your life, if you don't replace that with the Holy Spirit of the living God, you are in danger of that sin coming in seven times worse than before. Which is what happened with Israel and what we see in this generation. Here's the problem. Reformation is not what this generation needs. We need regeneration. 
Regeneration, which only comes by the power of the Holy Spirit. Titus 3.5, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So we can deny sin, we can kick the habit, we can swear off old addictions, but if we just say no to sin and we don't say yes to the Spirit of Christ, we are in danger of it coming back worse. Romans 8, verse 8, Paul said, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. He says in verse 10, If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. And that's the great mystery Paul talks a lot about in Ephesians. Christ in me. He talks about it in Colossians as well. Christ in me. The mystery of God. And that is being filled up. Every generation needs the regeneration of Jesus. And until the church gets our heads back on and realizes that just saying no ain't enough, we're not going to see the kind of generational change that we've seen in the past. We're not going to see the kind of revival that has happened even in this country in the past until we recognize we've got to be filled with the Spirit of the living Christ. Now in verse 15, back in uh, Proverbs 30, Agur introduces a theme of greed. Theme of greed. He says, The leech has two daughters. Give and give. That's their names. (laughs) Give me! (laughs) Give! I want more. More blood. The blood-sucking leech. This is the picture of things that are just never satisfied. A picture of the greed of mankind. And then he goes on to describe even more so. There are three things that will not be satisfied Four that will not say enough. Sheol and the barren womb. Earth that is never satisfied with water. And Mick Jag- I'm a fire that never... You know, I can't get no satisfaction. And fire that never says enough. These four things, this picture. Now remember, because we're starting to see this, this, this interesting pattern, and it's a, it's a poetic way of emphasizing the last thing in the list. When he says there are three things that are such and such, four that are this way. And uh, commentators, if you want to jot this down, call it the X plus one pattern. Because sometimes we, we saw it with, uh, with strife, that there are six things that are, that are hated by God, seven that are an abomination to Him. You know? And so that's the same idea here. There are three things, three things, he says, how does he say it? That will not be satisfied. Four, that will not say enough. So the idea is emphasis on number four. But think through these three. Sheol, that is the place of the dead, never gets full of the dead. Never gets full of the dead. Uh, it, it's, it's ready for anyone to die at any time. And people keep dying and it just keeps sucking them up and everything's good, just like the leeches. Give me more, give me more. The barren womb. The barren womb that never stops longing for a child. The land, the land that always needs more water, just ask my water bill. You know, the more you water, the more you got to keep watering in the dry months. It just keeps sucking it up. And these three things reveal this insatiable desire, and what they are is pictures of lust. Lust and greed, and the attitude of humanity that we always want more. It's never enough. Just give me just a little more. I know I've got this, but if I could just have that in addition, that'd be fantastic. You know? And we all have different, different things that we lust after, different things we're greedy for. It may not all be the same thing. 
But there's always something in our lives we need more of. We just can't stop. James says in James 1.14, each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Now listen, then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And he's just said, these three things are never satisfied. Shield, the barren womb, and the land, thirsty for water. They're just never satisfied. And then he takes it a step further to number four, fire. Fire that always wants to consume more as long as there is something to burn. Why on this list is fire the big deal? Why does fire land at number four? This is the one he's focusing, he's honing in on. Let me just give you my opinion on this. Lust gives birth to sin. Sin grows up bringing about death and the final result of insatiable desire and lust is not death, it's fire. It's an all-consuming fire. You're talking about hell, Rick? Yes, I am. Well, Rob Bell says there's really not a hell. If you've read his book, Love Wins, you know. And I just today, I wasn't even going to mention Captain Bell, but I walked into the kitchen today and there was an article my mother-in-law had set there from Useless Today and it was from the religious section and it had a had another review on this book and the reviewer was very positive in saying, see the problem is we've gotten hell wrong. Everywhere in the Bible, most places in the Bible he wrote in the New Testament where Jesus refers to hell, we've mistranslated. It's not really hell, it's Gehenna. And he's right. It's the valley of the Hinnom Valley where there was a trash dump that was all, always burning and where originally Molech worship went on in the valley of Hinnom where Molech, where babies were sacrificed in the fires of the belly of, of Molech. And so Jesus was just alluding to being cast out. If you, if you don't love God, then you're going to like being thrown out with the trash. That's all it really is. It's not hell. It's this eternal fire. And how could God send someone to hell for all eternity in fire? Doesn't that just seem a little extreme? And this, I'm reading the article just going, listen, it's not that I want to be right about hell. I wish I was wrong. But what the scriptures describe is not what's interesting, and he totally missed this. Jesus uses this word, eternal fire. You know what the word eternal is in the Greek? Eternal. And there's really no getting around that. Well, still, I just, and maybe you're one of those truly compassionate people. And you just don't like the idea that just because someone says they're going to end up in hell for eternity, how could a just God do that? And my answer to you is we don't understand the depth of sin. For us even to ask the question, We do not realize, we do not understand from the perspective of a perfect holy God how absolutely sick and abominable sin really is. We're real good at painting over sin and making it not that big a deal. It's just, you know, just a little mistake here, a little goof there, a little slip up here. And the Lord from His perspective sees it completely differently. Sin's that bad? Yeah. Have you thought about Jesus on the cross lately? That's how bad it is. Not to mention the fact that God in His love and grace and compassion went all the way through the cross itself so that we wouldn't go to hell. He did everything necessary so that we would not have to ever face it. Hell wasn't created for us. Matthew 25, look it up. It was created for the devil and his angels. 
But to reject a holy God and rebel and stay in the place of sin? Jesus said, Matthew 18, verse 8, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It's a little extreme, Jesus. Yeah, it's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. Jesus' words, not Pastor Rick's. And again, I wish I could lose that argument. I would love to find out, wow, we were wrong. We're all going to heaven. Every one of us. We're just all going to, it's just going to be one big happy slappy time. Everyone goes. That'd be great. That's not what this says. And whether I agree with it or fully understand it, I'm going to go with what this says. Lust is insatiable. And what Agur is saying is, it's so insatiable, you feed lust and it will always want more. Little, little trick there, a little thing to understand with sin. Sometimes we say, I'm just so tired of drinking and I know it's not right, I need to stop, but I'm just going to drink one more time. Just tonight. And then, I, and then I'm going to stop. You feed lust and it wants more. I'm just going to smoke this last joint. You feed lust and it wants more. <clears throat> I mean, my girlfriend are just going to sleep together one more time. I don't have a girlfriend, I have a wife, but go with me on this. And we're just going to sleep together one more time and then we're never going to again. Just tonight, feed it. And it wants more. And that's lust. And that's what he's describing here. And Augustine said, Our hearts will never be at rest until they rest in thee. Amen to that. Verse 18. Going on, he says, There are three things which are too wonderful for me. Four which I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky. The way of a serpent on a rock. The way of a ship in the middle of the sea and the way of a man with a maid. What? Okay, three things and four. So number four is the big one. He does not get. What's he talking about here? Number four is romantic love and he's going, it's, it's out of my league. It is above my pay scale. I don't understand it. I don't get it. Romance, women, forget it. I'm out of my league. Completely. He's describing that. But, but what's the connection with these? That's what's kind of fun about reading through these, is figuring this out. Okay, the way of an eagle in the sky, a serpent on the rock, a ship in the sea, and a man with a maid. What is similar about these four things? And you know what it is? They all four speak of something that goes where there is no path. An eagle in the sky isn't bound by you know a track that it follows. Ship in the sea doesn't follow a track. A serpent on a rock, boy, they turn and squirm and go every which way they want to go. And a romantic relationship, who knows where that's going? <laughs> Hard to track. You know, when a guy starts to spend time with, to date, to marry a woman, he is going where no man has gone before. <laughs> Truly. And it's, it's a learning, it's a joy, it's wonderful. Highly recommend marriage. But it's a learning process. Even now, 25 years in, it continues to be an unblazed trail. You know, And that's what he's talking about here. All these three things. You know, there's something else like that. And that is life in the Spirit. You get filled with the Spirit of Jesus Christ and you will start down a path that has never been gone before by anybody else. And you won't always know where you're going. In fact, most of the time you won't know. I've shared before. Ask me where this church is going to be in five years. I don't know. Are you going to still be in the barn? I don't know. 
You going to be over there on Troxel Road? I don't know. Are we all still going to be here on earth? Hope not. (laughs) But we don't know where we're going. Jesus said the wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it. You do not know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. What an adventure. There is no path to track, no way to be certain except in Christ Jesus. And then I think back to our friend Agora saying, I just want two things. I want the truth and I want to trust. Truth and trust. And I'm good to go. I just need to know Jesus. I don't have to know where I'm going. If you had told me 20 years ago I'd be here tonight, I would have been blown away. I couldn't have imagined. I don't know where I'm going, but He does. So I just need to know Him. Verse 20 says, This is the way of an adulterous woman. By the way, oftentimes in the Proverbs we've seen adulterous means strange. A strange woman, foreign woman, a different woman is kind of translated adulterous. This one is adulterous. Literally, it's a sexually immoral woman. The Hebrew word there for adulterous is, has to do with sexual immorality. This is the way. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done no wrong. I haven't done anything wrong. Isn't it remarkable? what power we human beings have to rationalize sexual behavior. To pretend like it's not so bad or that we really haven't done anything wrong and it's done all the time. Now, many of you sitting here tonight will say, well, I'm married. What are you talking about? I'm not an adulterer. By Jesus' definition... Every man who looks at a woman with lust in his heart has committed adultery with her already, he says. I'm not going to make you guys raise your hands. Or you ladies. Ladies, well, ladies aren't you know, into lust and, and that kind of... You ought to see the statistics. And there's something going on in the church, and you all, I think, are fully aware of this, among Christians. And it's a lack of recognizing the connection between body and soul and spirit. It is far stronger than we want to accept. What I do with my body affects my soul, affects my spirit, and vice versa. And it is a powerful connection, and even Christians deny it. The body is scarred by sexual immorality. Physically, It causes problems for us. And I can go into it, I'm not going to right now. The soul is stripped because of sexual immorality. The spirit is seared, ultimately, Paul says to Timothy, as with a branding iron. To the point where you're not even really able to distinguish the right or the wrong of it. Well, Rick, isn't all sin that way? Yeah, yeah. But sexual sin is worse. Not worse as in terms of a sin. All sin is sin before the eyes of God, but it's worse for us. Because Paul talks about it being this sin is against the body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The denial factor in the church is nowhere more obvious than it is with pornography. Men and women alike. Here are just a few little statistics. I've given you stats before on this. Every second, $3,075.64 is spent on pornography in the United States. Every second. Every second, 372 Internet users type adult search terms into search engines. 372 people, every time I'm doing this, are typing in different adult words. 
Just search it out on the internet. Every second, 28,258 internet users are viewing pornography. What? Here's one more recent. According to christiannews.christiannet.com, 60% of Christian men and 30% of Christian women are addicted to pornography. Addicted. That's not just the person who every now and then is going, delete. You know, we're talking about someone who cannot keep from going there. Addicted. Why is that? Well, going back to what we said before, there's all kinds of, you know, focus on reformation, but there's no regeneration. We clean and we sweep out the house. Okay, that's it. I'm done. I've deleted all the pages. I'm I'm not going there anymore. I'm clean. I'm free from it. Thank you. Praise God. But we don't fill the empty place with a spirit. Well, how do you do that? Well, how about instead of your fingers going there, your fingers going here? Change the behavior. I'd love to get online right now, but I'm going to see what Agur has to say tonight. (laughs) And you go there. And it's, it's a dangerous thing. Paul addresses it this way, 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee immorality. The word immorality is pornea in the Greek where we get our word pornography. Flee it. Run away from it. Don't even go there. Don't be near it. You run the opposite direction. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man, the pornea man, the pornographer, he sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you're not your own? This is something Christians need to figure out. I need to understand. I am not my own. I have been made new. Didn't we just sing that? I'm not my own. I've been bought, Paul says, with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. How about instead of going to the internet, singing a worship song? Replacing the behavior with things that glorify and praise and honor God. Because until we fill with the Spirit, the demons are going to come into the void. And they're going to do it time and time again. And it is epidemic in the church. 60% of men, that was shocking. 30% of women, I couldn't believe. 3 in 10 ladies are addicted. What? And again, this is among Christians who are supposed to be different than the world. Maybe that's why we're not making the kind of impact we used to make. And I, I'm sorry, I, I don't, I'm really not trying to be negative or down on you all, because I know none of you have these issues. <laughs> Verse 21. Under three things the earth quakes, and under four it cannot bear up. Now the earth here is a figure of speech for the inhabitants of the earth. He's talking about people. And Agur, right now, he's speaking in what they call hyperbole, which is exaggeration. He's exaggerating to make a point. But listen to what he says. Three things that cause the earth to quake under four. It cannot bear up. Verse 22, under a slave when he becomes a king. And a fool when he's satisfied with food. Under an unloved woman when she gets a husband. And number four, here's the big one. A maidservant when she supplants her mistress. Huh? What? Okay, that's weird. Let's go on. Verse, no. No, wait a minute. What, what are you talking about, Agur? The general idea here is 
what shakes, what rattles the earth is when things are out of place or out of order. Things that are not the way they ought to be. A servant made king who lacks the experience for the job. <laughs> Let's move on from that one. A satisfied <laughs> fool. <laughs> servant made king. Secondly, a satisfied fool. The fool who's, who's eating plenty, who's got plenty to eat there, he's satisfied with food. What's the problem with that? He thinks he's got it all together and he is a danger to himself and others. This is a fool who has no needs. Everything's taken care of. You know, you think about some of the, some of the in- incredibly rich heirs and heiresses out there today and what they're doing with their riches. And I'm, I'm not going to name names, but you could probably figure out a few real easily. You watch MTV for a little while and you can see some of their shows. It's, you know, yeah. it's incredible. A satisfied fool is someone with, uh, that has no needs. They're carefree and therefore they're careless. The third thing is the unloved woman is actually a spiteful woman. The translation is interesting. Un, under an unloved woman when she gets a husband, and the word there is sane in the Hebrew and it means hateful. The hateful woman who gets a husband... And she carries her spiteful, bitter, hateful heart into the marriage and she brings grief. Rocks his world. Shakes it all up. Number four is the most interesting to me because it seems like the least dangerous among these four. A supplanting maid. Hmm. A maidservant when she supplants her mistress. And Agur says these four things would rock the world. Supplanting maid. What does that make you think of? Hagar. The story of Hagar. And of all the stories in the Hebrew Scriptures, none has rocked the Middle East like Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. Bringing about the birth of Ishmael through Hagar and Isaac through Abraham, and they have been at war ever since. Shaking the world round about. Genesis 15, verse 3, Abram said... Since you've given no offspring to me, Lord, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir. He thought it would be his servant, Eliezer. And God said, No, one will come forth from your own body, and he shall be your heir. So in Genesis 16, verse 3, after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And the problem started right there. Because Abram said, well, I guess if my heir is going to be from my body, it's not going to be from my body and Sarai's because she's getting up there. So we need to do something here. And they get Hagar. And when she entered the picture, the aftershocks of that faithless decision are still being felt in the Arab-Israeli conflict today. (laughs) Still being felt. That was 4,000 years ago, my friends. Talk about an earthquake that shakes the entire world. No wonder that's number four in the list. Of the four, it's the biggest. It's the most stunning. The aftershocks. But consider this. The first in the list of all these world shakers, a slave or a servant made king. And Agur says, it's not a good idea. It's going to rattle the order of things. It'll shake things up. And he's absolutely right. Jesus said in Luke twenty-two twenty-seven, who's greater? The one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines? And Jesus says, I'm among you as the one who serves. 
And when the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, returns as the glorious King, Jesus Christ, the earth and all its inhabitants, oh, they're going to shake. He is going to shake things up. Men will go into caves, Isaiah 2.19, of the rocks and into holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty when He arises to make the earth tremble. And John saw it happen in the Revelation chapter 6, verse 15. The kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the rocks and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? The servant who comes as the king. And he will shake things up. Verse 24. Four things are small on the earth, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are not a strong people, but they prepare their food in the summer. How big is the head of an ant? How big is the brain in the head of an ant? I mean, talk about it. They're not even a pea brain. They're smaller than a pea brain. Okay? And yet they know. They know. There's wisdom there. And Agor sees them preparing and he goes, oh, those are some smart little creatures there. The Shephanim, verse 26, are not mighty people, yet they make their houses in the rocks. What are the Shephanim? Those are rock badgers. And you can see them in Israel today. They're the coolest, fuzzy little creature. They're kind of what you would imagine. They're probably about two feet or so long, covered all over in fur, cute little faces, and they can just go totally flat. It's, it's bizarre. They sit up on top of a rock, kind of all puffy, and if you go near them, they just go, and they're in the rocks. And they go through cracks this big, and you're like, how are you doing that? It's like they collapse their little bodies or something, I don't know. The Shephanim. The smart creatures. Why is that? Well, they make their houses in the rocks. And he, he's watching all this. The locusts, they have no king, and yet all of them go out in ranks. Have you noticed that? How they fly in perfect order, these bugs? All flying together in rank. And verse 28, The lizard you may grasp with the hand, yet it is in the king's palaces. And that lizard there is, some translations say spider, bad translation, it's probably a gecko. It's a, it's a specific type of lizard that is in Israel, in the Middle East. It's kind of a gecko that can climb on the walls and just hang there you know, all day long. It was up, you know, they're just there. Agur looks around and he sees these four creatures functioning with such order and wisdom. And wisdom says, notice them. Think about this. Ants, man, acquire the wisdom of an ant. What's that? Be prepared. Just be prepared. Luke 12.35, be dressed in readiness, keep your lamps lit. Like the ant, preparing for the coming winter, be prepared. Be ready. Study the Shephanim, the, the, the rock badger. How do I do that? Build your house on the rock. That's smart. That's looking for a foundation that will stand. Jesus said in Matthew 7.24, Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Learn from the locust. Learn from the locust. Go out in rank. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is wisdom here. Go out together. I'm going to take on the world. Not by yourself, you're not. Jesus even sent the apostles out, Mark 6-7, some of the twelve, and sent them out in pairs. 
Two by two, gave them authority over unclean spirits. Luke chapter 10 verse 1 says that after this the Lord appointed 70 others and He sent them in pairs ahead of Him to every city and place where He Himself was going to come. Jesus had a knack for this organization. He didn't send them out by themselves because by themselves they did stupid things. Like Peter. You know, by himself going, I don't know who He is. No, I've never seen Him before. Curse you, I have no idea who this Galilean is. Three denials. Who was with Peter? Nobody. He was by himself. And Jesus sent out in Paris. Like the locust. I mean, hey, it's an ugly insect, but smart in that it goes in rank. Acts chapter 13, verse 2 says, While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. You know, Paul never went on a missionary journey by himself. He was always surrounded. He either was with Barnabas originally or or with Silas. Luke was often with him. He eventually even sought after John Mark. Because there's something of going out in rank together. And finally, take a lesson from the lizard. (laughs) Take a lesson from the lizard. Make your home in the palace of the king. And you get there. You, You be there. Be in the palace. John 14.2, Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. Right on, that's where I want to be. Like the lizard, maybe I don't belong there. I know I don't. I know it of myself, man, I got the sense of a lizard, but I want to be yeah. in the palace of the king. And you know what Agur is doing here? He's doing what a wise man does. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 5 says, A wise man will hear and increase in learning. And Agur, you can almost see him sitting there looking around looking at the wisdom of God in creation and tapping things and going, that's a smart thing to do. That's a godly thing. Wow, God made that. You know, and seeing all these things and putting meaning to them, wise meaning. Verse 29, we're almost there. There are three things which are stately in their march, even four which are stately when they walk. So be watching out for number four. Number one, the lion which is mighty among beasts. Yes, the lion is stately. It does not retreat before any. The strutting rooster. I hadn't really thought about it before, but yeah, I guess it's somewhat stately, the rooster walking along. The male goat, also stately in his walk. And number four, and the focus, a king when his army is with him. He does something interesting in these two sets of four. He compares and contrasts. He starts with four lowly creatures that show wisdom, ant, rock badger, locust, lizard. And then he goes to four stately creatures, the lion, the rooster, the goat, and finally a king, but a king on the march. A king with his army behind him. Does that draw up a picture for you? I immediately think of Jesus with his army marching behind him Revelation 19.11, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. It's the church. We're following Him on white horses. How stately will be that march. How wonderful 
as we go through the trackless skies following, following Jesus back toward Jerusalem. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. A king when his army is with him. Now, before we say goodbye to Agur, and he disappears back into obscurity from whence he came, he offers these two final thoughts. First off, if you have been foolish in exalting yourself, or if you have plotted evil, put your hand on your mouth. Man, better to clap your hand over your mouth than to put your foot in your mouth. And if you're prone to prideful sin, what a guru would say is, stop. Don't do it. Knock it off. That's what Jesus would say. Go your way and sin no more. Jesus was always first to forgive, second to say, stop sinning. I forgive you, now don't sin. I love you, you have my compassion. I don't condemn you, don't sin. He always came back to that. And that's what Agur is saying. Stop. Charles Bridges says, we are quicker to open our mouths in self-justification than in self-judgment. And it would be wise for us to learn that. Rather than defending myself so quickly, I should stop and go, well, maybe there's some truth to this. Perhaps. I have been foolish in exalting myself. Verse 33, he finishes, and it's an interesting way to finish, for the churning of milk produces butter, okay, and pressing the nose brings forth blood. Hmm. So the churning of anger produces strife. Note this. The key word here in all three of these statements is churning. Churning, pressing, churning, those three words, it's the same word in the Hebrew. Same word, it's the word meets, and it means pressuring or squeezing. And read that way, the pressuring or squeezing of milk produces butter. The pressuring of the nose produces or, or brings forth blood. In the same way, the pressuring of anger produces strife. The issue here, gang, is not anger. The issue is stirring up anger. The issue is the one who's pressing contention, trying to bring about strife. That's the problem. Like churning butter or squeezing blood from a nose is someone who is stirring the pot of strife. That's where Agur ends. Which is amazing to me. This prophet with a burden from the Lord, a prophecy of God, comes down to the final thing, the last thing he's going to say, and it's going to go in the Word of God, and we're going to have it all the way until Jesus comes... And he ends right there. Churning up strife. 2 Timothy 2.24 says, The servant of the Lord must not strive. Apparently, Agur was seeing something. Seeing something that is right up there at the top of the sins of man and its strife. Stirring up strife between brothers. Remember, six things that Lord hates, seven that are an abomination, and seven on the list is a man who stirs up strife between his brothers. 
That God hates more than almost anything else. Strife. Busting up unity. Causing problems. And it's amazing because that concludes the burden of Agur. He began with humility. Surely I am more stupid than any man. I do not have the understanding of a man, neither have I learned wisdom, nor do I have the knowledge of the Holy One. And then he comes to the end, and there's this amazing call to self-evaluation, self-judgment. It's not a call to say, yeah, yeah, those people who turn up or turn up strife, yeah, they are a problem. Whoa. What Agur is saying to you, and he's saying to me is, are you one of those? Is there somewhere in your life where you're stirring it up? Stop. Just stop. Self-evaluation. Self-judgment. In this chapter, are you content? Are you of the rebellious or the religious or the pretentious or the repressive kind? Are you dissatisfied with where God has you in your life right now? Are you prideful? Are you a plotter of evil? Are you struggling with sexual immorality? Are you one who strives? Better still, what it says back in verse 4, do you know the Holy One? What is His name? What is His Son's name? Because in knowing Him, all the rest will be taken care of. In knowing Jesus, let's pray. Lord Jesus, You matter most to us. You are the critical issue. Yes, as our Lord and our Savior, yes, we desire a relationship with You. Yes, Lord, we want to see You and to to walk with You. We want intimacy with You through the Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus. But Lord, tonight, where we land and what I pray for is that we would be more filled with You. Lord, that, that You would press out of us all of these things that would keep us from You. That, Lord, You would pour out for Your people compassion and forgiveness, grace, and not condemnation. But, Lord, as we receive grace, may we also receive to the overflowing the abundance of Your Spirit and Your presence in our lives. Will You overcome the sin in us? Lord Jesus, battle the sin nature in me. Calm the sea of my rebellion. Just take over. I know I've been bought with a price. And we accept that we belong to You. In Jesus' name, Amen.